Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer and musician Kip Blackshire. Best known for his work with Prince and the New Power Generation from the late 1990s through the mid-2000s. His involvement included live shows as well as studio productions such as Raven to the Joy Fantastic, Rainbow Children, and Musicology albums, MPG Music Club releases, and the Funky Bald Heads Offshoot Group. In addition, he has released his own recordings, received film and TV credits, and worked with talents such as Maceo Parker, Eric Benet, Al Green, Dr. Dre, and Eminem. Yep. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Where are you today, Kip? Los Angeles, California. It's my hometown. Ah, all right. Next door to Yeah. Awesome. So how long have you been out there? Well, I recently got back from Minnesota. I was on a hiatus during the pandemic. I went, left here. I've been here for 13 years before that left and went back for about a year and a month or so, and I got back here in January. All right. Well, good. Uh, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it, and uh, been looking forward to talking to you. Absolutely. So let's jump right in, Kip. You know, what was growing up like for you, and what drew you to music, and what were some of your early inspirations? 
Uh, I grew up in a church, four generations of gospel singers. Uh, my mom and aunts, my grandmother, grandfather, they had all been singing for quite some time. So I was kind of born into a lot of talent, a lot of singing. Um, started singing probably around at the age of five. Um, and actually the kindergarten, I was in kindergarten, but it was a school talent show. And uh, I grew up as a very shy kid and uh, they put me right out front and made me sing lead vocals. So that's where everything got started. Uh, but again, I grew up in church. It was uh, not choir, but it was more your quartet gospel group where it was like four members. My mom and them, they all sang quartet. Uh, and my brothers, I have two older brothers, Johnny and Dewan, uh, which both did something on rave with Prince as well. Um, and uh, so we had a group uh, and my family was called the Beard family, but uh, we were the Beard Juniors. So we're the junior group to my mom and them. And that's where everything got started. And what, you know, what's your experience with instruments? Well, you know, uh, my first instrument was actually bass. My uncle Jimmy, he's the bass player in the family, but I mean, he played bass, drums, guitar. Um, so I started out playing bass but I knew in the family group, <laughs> there was no room for me to play bass because it was already covered. So I picked up the instrument that I know I saw no one playing, which was the keyboards. And that was my introduction to the keyboards. But I started playing keyboards um, at the age of 17. So I started really late. So uh, six years later, of course, that's how I ended up on the gig with Prince because he heard me sing, but he was like, well, do you play an instrument? And I was like, well, yeah, I actually happened to play some keys and he heard me play. I was like, oh, Takumi, get him two more keyboards in here. And, you know, that's how it all started. And what were some of your favorite musicians and bands, you know, as a teen? Oh, a lot of the stuff for me was predicated to gospel because in my household, we weren't allowed to listen to secular music. So, I mean, you talk about, yeah, you had your Al Greens, and, but I'm sure there's a lot of these guys you probably never heard of, Quartet Gospel, like the Canton Spirituals, uh, the Pilgrim Jubilees, uh, the Mighty Clouds of Joy, which I mean, Joe Lagana, those guys are actually from California. So uh, Willie Neal Johnson in the Gospel Keynotes, uh, Robert Blair and the Fantastic Volunteers. Uh, so my stuff came from a real niche sort of quartet gospel kind of a sound, but it was a real soul field sound. Uh, and um, that's where everything sort of started for me as a youngster. But as I got older, the closest I could get to secular music and listening to anything was contemporary gospel music, which led me to people like uh, Andre Crouch, the Winans, and this group called Commission, which Fred Hammond, he's still one of my favorite artists now. So. That's why I picked up a lot of my musicality from. And did you have any actual lessons and things like that, or just kind of picked it up on your own? Yeah, everything was all pretty much by ear. You know, I was never taught to read music. My mom and them, they gave me uh, about, they paid for about five lessons, which I just kind of watched the dude play a little bit. And uh, God rest his soul, Jesse Earl Carter was his name. He was a, famous gospel musician back in my hometown in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And so I listened to him a little bit, but I 
you know, after that, I was just like, yeah, I don't necessarily want the lessons anymore because I kind of have my own way of learning and I wanted to learn. So actually the way that that started is I worked for a music store, a local music store in the, uh, the mall, the local mall in my hometown. And uh, there was this Pentecostal lady, Miss Brenda Castile, and she used to play the organs all the time and she would just hammer away at this organ. Little Vienna sausage fingers, just like killing the organ though. And so I would watch her play oftentimes and I would pick up things and musicians would all, oftentimes stop through there. So for me, it was always about listening. And it wasn't until I started with Prince that I heard the word synesthesia because when I hear, you know, chords or when I hear notes, I see colors. And uh, so in my mind, it was like I was always putting these collages together in my head, but I could never talk to anybody about it because I had no idea what that was till I got with Prince. And then of course there's Michael Bland, Sonny Thompson, John Blackwell, all these guys understand what it is. And I'm like, oh, okay. So this is kind of how that thing works. And that was my inspiration. So a lot of it was, you know, internal. And I think the rest of it was about um, what was actually inspiring to me. People that have that gift, um do they see in the same colors for the tones or is it just very? I think it's a spectrum. It's sort of a range. It's like if you see an orange, it could be a gold for you or, or a yellow for someone else, you know? So it's somewhat within that same realm, same range. Yes. Hmm, that's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what were the, you know, series of events that allowed you to cross paths with Prince? Okay, I'm sure you know Morris Hayes. Mm -hmm. Morris Hayes is also from Arkansas, and he'll tell people all the time, yeah, I knew this kid since he was a stomach, you know, because he basically grew up with my aunts, some of my aunts. And again, my mom and their group was, they were the powerhouse in the tri-state area, you know, where I'm from, like Arkansas, Texas, uh, Mississippi. And, um, and they were pretty much at the time sort of the only female quartet group doing things at that level. Uh, but Morris was actually the first person that I saw play keyboards um, with his group. And when he came and we went to his family church back in Jefferson, Arkansas, and he'll say he's from the country and I'm from the city because where I'm from is a little larger. It's like 56,000 people with all of the surrounding pockets and the whole bit. So, I moved, my brothers and I, we got older, we moved to Texas and um, a mutual friend of ours, you know, knew Morris as well. So it kind of came back around full circle. I started talking to Morris at my forklift job driving down in Houston, Texas on my breaks. I would get on the phone and we would have a conversation and he would tell me like, hey, you just need some gear, you know, you need some stuff and why don't you come up here and, you know, I like your production skills, you know, you can work out of my B studio. So I'm like, all right, I took uh, a buddy pass and I flew up to Minnesota and everything just kind of started picking up. And then the second time that I went there, you know, I kept producing music, you know, for my brothers and myself. And it was like, man, I got to take some of this in here so Prince can hear it. And I'm just like, okay, well, I didn't have the privilege of growing up listening to Prince. So I really had no clue as to who he was in the game like that. I knew of him. It was like the other guy that competed with MJ, you know, he was really dope, but I just knew none of his stuff like that. 
Um, and so ultimately, Carlos Santana came to town uh, in Minneapolis and he played Target Center. I think it was on his uh, big album with uh, Rob Thomas, I guess that's the, the guy uh, from Matchbox 20. And, you know, so Prince went and did a cameo on stage with Carlos Santana and Morris asked me to come. And so I went and I sat at the soundboard and I watched Prince and Santana jam. And after the fact, of course, if you know Prince, he wants to go back to Paisley Park and do a private jam session, just he wants to keep playing. So I went back and, you know, that's how everything sort of got started. But they're on stage jamming. There's a basketball sitting on the floor and the hoop was sitting right against the pole. And so I'm just like, man, I kind of want to grab the basketball a little bit. I'm kind of the only person standing in here. So, okay, let me slide over. So I picked up the basketball and started shooting. Next thing I know, Prince jumps in front of me. He wants to play basketball. So that's really how everything got started. He and I, we play basketball all the time. So that particular day we're playing and, you know, so I'm shooting some jumpers and, you know, so I kind of give it to him a little bit and he's like, oh no, Takumi, go get my shoes. I was like, oh no, man, like, you know, I got these boots on, I don't want to twist my ankle. And he was like, well, do you play for the University uh, uh, of Minnesota? I'm like, no, no, I don't play any organized ball or anything like that, man. I'm just, uh, you know, an aspiring artist, you know, trying to find my way. And uh, so he was like, yeah, why don't you come back and play basketball tomorrow? Let's, let's shoot some hoops tomorrow. So sure enough, I came back the next day and it was rehearsal time for then. And so we played a couple of games. It was Prince and I versus, you know, Morris Hayes and Kurt Johnson on some two, two on two basketball. And we get finished. He says, okay, well, you know, I got to go make some phone calls and then we're going to get ready to rehearse. I took that as my cue. Like, okay, I think I should get up and leave. I don't want to get kicked out. So I'd rather just walk out. Morris like, no, no, just go, you know, grab a chair over in the corner. And I do. Next thing I know, you know, I'm like, all right, let me go and kind of at least wipe the sweat off of me. So I'm in the restroom, just kind of singing under my breath, just humming, nothing crazy at all. And so Prince comes out, I'm back at the table and he just appears as he always did, you know, out of thin air and he's right next to me and he's like, hey, you know, heard you can sing a little bit. Why don't you come on stage? Let's see if you can sing for real. I'm like, wait, what? Sing for real? I'm like, oh, okay, you know, let's go get it, you know? and that's where everything got started. He opened up his lyric book to Little Red Corvette and he told me to use this microphone. So I kind of leaned over and was reading the lyrics and they were playing, uh, it was Larry Graham on bass, Prince on guitar, Kirk on drums, Morris Hayes on organs and keys. And uh, so they were playing uh, what is now known as Larry Graham's song, Free. And they were playing the music of Free and he asked me to sing the lyrics of Little Red Corvette over the top of Free. I did, I sang the first line, he says on the one, he looks at me and it was like, uh, hmm, bet you can't do that again. I was like, oh, I bet I can. So started again, two, three. I started singing, he's like, hmm, okay. And when he got to the chorus of the song, he taps me on the shoulder, it's like, let me get this. I'm like, all right. So he starts playing a solo and I had never been on stage where I heard somebody play that way. And I looked like, oh snap, like, what is that? And he looks at me like, yeah, you want some? And I'm like, yeah, and I just went for it. And he was like, oh, okay. So he and I started trading off. I'm singing some lines. He's playing some lines back. And 
he cuts rehearsal that day and says, yeah, you come with me. I got a song that I think you'd sound great on my next album. And it was Undisputed on Rave. And he asked me in the studio after we got finished, hey, you know, are you under any contracts, any management, any label stuff? I'm like, no, nothing like that. It's like, well, how would you like to be a part of the band? I was like, yeah, sounds good to me. And he hands me a set list of 40 songs. And it was on Monday and I needed to have all of those songs learned on keys, vocals and some choreography. And I'm just like, okay, cool. And Morris looks at me like, oh my God, like, dude, do you know what you've just stepped into? I'm like, yeah, it's okay. But it was just the idea that I didn't realize who he was. So I was just like, hey, if I got to learn it, I have to learn it. I figured that that's how everybody got in the band. But Morris was like, no way. This is not how we did it, but and so I thankfully I pulled it off. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> how old were you? 23. 23 years old. Yeah. So you never saw anything quite like that in the gospel world, right? No, not like that. I mean, I've seen some some very talented people in the gospel world, but when you talk about like just an all-around talent where someone can step on the guitars and they can just, they've mastered that. You hear him sing, they've mastered that. When he jumps on keys, he's mastered that. Bass, drums, I'm just like, oh my God, who is this dude, you know? So for me, I was just like, wow, I can learn a lot from this guy. And, you know, he kept me with him all the time. And Prince knew I was very shy. I had a lot in me, but I didn't want to necessarily step in the front. I always want to hit a little something and kind of tuck back behind the keys. And that's how the whole situation with the funky bald heads, you know, kind of came along as far as the tour situation with him. Um, he asked me to, you know, they had a lead vocalist that he wasn't really fond of. And he asked me if I would come on and do lead vocals for the band. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm like for Kirk, anything for Kirk. Yeah. You know, Kirk's one of my mentors. So absolutely. You know, if his, we get to travel and do things and Kirk can teach me a lot about being a lead vocalist, you know, because I was super shy and that's how that thing was born. But there was another side of Prince, you know, that I'm sure, you know, those of us that really know him knows how he is. And he was a highly competitive musician and artist. And his thing was, uh, we would go to different cities and say we were in Detroit, Common was playing and he was like, do you know the light, the hook to the light? I'm like, yeah, I've been hearing that on the radio. He's like, yeah, it's pretty simple. I'm like, okay. So I went and listened to it for about five minutes. It's like, yeah, I know it. So we would play it and we went to Detroit. He's like, yeah, I want you to go on stage with Common. I'm like, oh, okay. So I would go on and I would sing the hook with Common. Uh, and he would do things like that all the time. Like, hey, yeah, go up there and take the microphone and just, I'm like, on somebody else's show. He was like, do you like your job? I'm like, oh, okay. Right, so I would go do it. And that was his way of pushing me, you know, constantly pushing me to, you know, go beyond what I thought I could do. And, you know, so I think that was the blessing. I've heard that so much from, you know, people I've had on the show, like Morris or Marva King, you know, and so many, mm -hmm. the way he would just, push you and get yeah. you to exceed what you thought you could do, uh, you know? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he had so much confidence in himself seemingly. Right. And I think, I don't know, maybe sometimes he thought everybody should have that kind of confidence. You know, I think you're onto something with that because 
that was really the thing with him. Like no one was going to come on stage with him and he was going to feel overwhelmed by that. So he was like, you know, for any musician, singer, whatever you are, when you come on stage with him, you really have a chance to be your very best and not feeling like you have to dim your light, which has happened to me over time. You know, since him, it's like I figured that everybody was the same way. So I go out guns blazing and it's just like, hey, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, you know, just never mind. And I'm just like, oh, I thought everybody, I thought it was just like a sort of a community in that regard. But I learned soon after that that wasn't the case. So that was a blessing for me because I got a chance to truly flourish and find out a lot about myself, you know, through, you know, his tutelage and his wisdom. Mm. So it must have been tough for you, though, to be up in front of so many people performing if you were shy, like you said. Oh, yeah. It's like I before I'll say before anything truly got started, there was a, a concert tour starting with Shaka Khan and Patti LaBelle that was sponsored by General Mills. And so the tour was actually starting in Minnesota. And that was another one of the situations Prince put me on the stage and he's like, yeah, Patty has a section in her show where she brings guys up on the stage and, you know, she'll go through the process of elimination and then she'll let you end the show. And he was like, tonight, that's going to be you. So I'm like, oh, and I'm like, okay, I'm really like reluctant. I'm like, oh my God, I really don't want to do this. And so sure enough, at the time, you know, Aaron was the security, head of security. So he walks me up to the front and, I get on stage and I immediately just fall back to the back of all these guys. It's like, okay, I have no idea what's happening, but all right, I'm up here now. Let's see what happens. And so she's holding the microphone from person to person. And when I sang, she was like, oh, wait a minute. You know what? You go stand over there. I know what this is. You're a ringer. I'm like, what is a ringer? You know, so it's, everything is new to me. And she's uh, going through the rest of the guys and she gets done. And she was like, okay, well now where's Prince? And the crowd starts laughing and, He's, of course, on the side of the stage and he looks at me and just goes, you know, I'm like, OK, you know, I know what that means. And so I'm like, I have no I don't even know the words to this song, but I will I'll sing and I'll just, you know, do what I am accustomed to doing at church. If I have to step on the gas. And that's how it all got started. And when I saw the response. You know, later, Prince would always give me wisdom after each one of these times. He was like, well, see the energy that you possess within, he was like, you come out in your mind, you're more afraid of them, but when you turn it back on them, then it's just like, oh my God, like, wow, okay. Please don't look at me, don't direct that energy at me. And I'm like, oh, okay, I see how this works. You know, it's a conversation that we're having. And if I'm gonna have a conversation with you, I'm gonna look you in your eyes and, and hopefully you'll return the same thing to me so and that's when it started to kind of make sense to me I had no reason to hide or cower or shy away I just needed to lean into the conversation of you know singing and you know trying to connect with people well the thing about Prince too in terms of a common thread with your experience I mean um, God and, and gospel was always so intertwined in him and his music at just different levels and different ways throughout his whole career. And when you came on that scene in the late nineties, especially he was really getting back in touch, you know, and searching for, you know, absolutely 
Like yeah. he, he wrote about, you know, in 1985 with the ladder, he was still looking, you know, for uh, the path. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and Larry Graham was such a, a important mentor as well in terms of that. Absolutely. He was. Yes. And that was the other thing too. It's like uh, when I, when he asked me about being in the band, you know, I could only tell him, you know, about the limited experience that I had seen or heard any of his music. And so, you know, we're in Studio A and he's sitting on the, the SSL and I'm sitting on the couch and he's like, you know, I, but I was like, well, I have just maybe a couple of concerns because I've never done anything outside of gospel music and I want my mom to be able to come to the show. He was like, uh, you don't have to worry about <laughs> that version of me anymore. You know, that's, that's gone. We're not, he was like, I don't swear on stage. There's none of that going around. And I'm like, okay, well, if that's going to be the case, then I accept, I can, I can be a part of this. He was like, you don't do contracts, do you? I'm like, at this level, I've never done any contracts of any, any sort. So I should be, I think we should be okay. And uh, it was like, all right, well, I don't do contracts either. So I'm like, okay. And of course I soon learned that that was, you know, his whole situation with Warner and that whole thing. So, yeah. So what was your studio experience? You know, you mentioned undisputed. That was the first time you went in the studio ever or. Well with him. Yes. But I, let me see when I first learned how to play keyboards, my grandmother bought me this keyboard and it had a eight track sequencer in it. And it was from the music store that I worked at. So they gave me a good deal on it. And that's how I started learning how to put music together. But somehow I put music together for this minister back in Arkansas. And he asked me to come to the studio to produce his project. And I knew nothing about doing anything like that. So I went in to the studio with the guy and I had a, an inkling for how these things worked because I'm like, okay, well, it's done in layers. And of course, we're not on computers like we are now back then. And um, so this had to be, oh man, 93, 94-ish. And we go into the studio and they have these Tascam DA88 tape machines. And so I go in and I do a, you know, a two track of my sequence of the music and then he asked me, like, okay, well, what about the background vocals? And I'm like, also, oh, you want me to sing on here too? And I'm like, okay. So I go in the booth and there wasn't a copy paste. <laughs> I had to sing the whole song down, you know, for as many times as I was layering the vocals. So I did it and I'm thinking, like, okay, well, I need to come back and tweak a couple of things and hear on the music and listen to the vocals and make sure that they're cool. The same night, they managed to put the song on the local radio station. And, you know, my mom comes into the room, to my bedroom, and she was like, yeah, come here. And I'm like, oh, no, like, what's going on? And she, it was back in a time where you put the tape in the tape recorder and you press play and record and you can record what's on the air, make your own mixtape, so to speak. And that was the first part of my experience. And she heard, you know, me on the radio. She was like, is this you? And I'm like, uh, yes, ma'am, that is me. And she was like, oh, my God. And she just, like, grabbed my cheeks and started shaking. Like, how'd you learn how to do this? I'm like, I don't know. I just kind of figured it out. So that was my first studio experience. And then, of course, when I got with Morris Hayes, that was, you know, a lot of the studio experience that I got because 
he had just walls and walls of just gear everywhere. So I had to learn how things ran and synced into the MPC 3000 and then, you know, running into the Mackie board from there to the D88s again, learning how to use the S760 samplers made by Roland. So it was all of this outboard gear and that was the bulk of my experience. So you could somewhat say I started in the analog age. I say the tail end of what we knew as the analog age before digital came on the scene. The Undisputed track in particular though, what was the process like for that? Well, you know, Prince played the music for me and he always played everything at level 15 coming out of those big Westlakes. Turning on, I was like, oh my God, like, this is crazy. Like, you know, he was like, yeah, you know, what do you hear on this? I'm like, oh, you know, so I was just going there and singing stuff. He was like, oh, I see him behind the control and he talked to me in my ears. He was like, you know, yeah, just give me something real crazy off the top, just go crazy running. So I'm like, all right, so I hit something. And he jumped up off of the soundboard and came in a room and just, you know, grabbed me by my shirt. He's like, yeah, come in here, come check this out. So I went and heard it. I'm just like, oh my God, like that's crazy. It was like, okay, so when this hook comes, what do you hear? So I went in there and get free, you know, and that was how that started, you know? So it wasn't necessarily him always, you know, saying, saying this and saying that. He would just say, okay, well, on this song, do you have, you know, sing like those old men that you're used to hearing from gospels. I throw my hands in my pocket, jingle my keys. Ah! And I'd start bringing out the old man character. So, you know, uh, say rainbow children, those types of things. Hey, you know, give me some kind of operatic kind of a thing. I'm like, oh, interesting. So I think that and I just do it. And he's like, well, you're like my new secret weapon, like a keyboard that no one has, but I can say, hey, give me this and you can give me that, you know? So that was kind of the thing. He wanted to see where I could go, what my range was. And then he started saying, okay, now that I know what you're capable of, you know, can you give me that right here? And then not so much of that, but then blend that with this. And so I'm starting to kind of hear and see what all of these things could be grown into based off of, you know, how we learned how to work with each other. Was the Public Enemy rap on that track yet when you heard it? No. It came after I did what I did. And um, he was like, you know, that was a part of the whole inspiration. It was so, you know, uh, what's the word, uh, raw and edgy. I mean, because you have to understand, too, the version that was released wasn't the first version that I got on, you know, um, and it, I think it changed maybe three or four times, you know, before it was released. Yeah, it's not uncommon for one of the earlier versions sometimes to be preferable <laughs> in some ways, you know, because yeah. a lot of times the record labels fiddle with stuff so much or the artist yeah. starts having second thoughts and you mm -hmm. second guess yourself, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I'd be curious to hear, you know, what the first version or two sounded like. Oh, I wish I had some of that stuff sometimes, but you know how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so how much time were you spending in and around Paisley and that kind of thing? Once I started there, look, it's like I had no, <laughs> I had no personal life. Um, and once Prince knew I was there and around, I'm there's so many songs that I've recorded on 
that I hope someday they see the light of day, but he was just constantly cutting and cutting and cutting. So oftentimes he would cut music and say, hey, here are the lyrics. Will you just sing these songs for me so I can hear them? And I'm like, all right, so I would do it. And at the time, Hans Buff was the you know mix engineer in the studio. And later, Femi Gia came on, you know, so I worked with both of those guys in the studio and they would play stuff back over the phone, the bat phone, you know, and, you know, he would hear it and say, okay, love it next. And so there would be times I would be recording eight songs a day, you know, and we would just go back to back to back. And then <laughs> end of the night, hey, you're still going to be a rehearsal in the morning, right? Well, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, so that was what it was for me. And I felt like it was just uh, a privilege because I got to do what I love to do, but I'm learning more and more about myself, you know, in terms of harmony, listening. To, he never pressured me saying, you know, okay, well, this is what I like. So it always has to be this way. I had a, a really grand sense of freedom to be able to record that way. So um, that's how a lot of it started. It's just random songs. Oh my God, I remember so many different titles but um, hopefully, like I say, someday some of that stuff sees the light of day. For me, I mean, you know, his third tier throwaways are better than most other stuff you could hear. Oh, so. oh my <laughs> God. Like you have no idea with some of the stuff. I mean, there was one song that's uh, still a favorite of mine uh, that was called 21 Guns. And man, oh my God. Like the intro of the song, it was almost like throwback 60s, you know but it had a, a fat bass line with a nice Hendrixy sounding guitar on there. And with me over the top of it, I'm just like, this is the most stupid thing I've ever heard myself on. And of course, later we do her way, and, you know, we do more, but that was one of the ones that he plucked and decided to sort of release. And he only let me sing it one time because I'm like, all right, cool, got it. Now let me hit it again. He was like, oh no. That's it, you know. I'm like, no, like, dude, you know, I can I can do way better than this. But that was his whole thing. Is like he wanted me to learn how to flow and not think so much. And Kip, what was your experience or and or like perception of some of the things that were going on, you know, during that era? Like, um, you know, the period that led to the Rainbow Children and having those people come into Paisley and those sessions that he was doing and um, the MPG music club, that kind of thing. Oh man. You know, he was so ahead of his time. You know, when I look at things like this, such as this, like with the podcasting, you know, era and things that, you know, are taking place now. Um, it was so, um, it was such a, I say one of the more creative periods in my life. You know, watching how all of these things, you know, come together, like how you literally have a concept of something and you see the whole thing through. But along the way, you have wiggle room for, you know, how you can do whatever it is that you're seeing along the path because you don't see it as static. So it taught me a lot about uh, creative freedom. Um, and then those people that I got to work with in that time, it was just amazing. Like I say right at the end of Raven to the year 2000 was when, you know, Kirk Johnson was phasing out of the drums and John Blackwell came on. So to be, to have us three in the room, uh, 
you know, uh, Blackwell got rest his soul. That's my brother, uh, P and myself. That was a lot of what it was. You know, we would do so much stuff. There's so much more that I thought would end up on the Rainbow Children that did because of how many songs we could, you know, and at one time, you know, there was just this period in time where we did so much. Certain things that ended up on the Rainbow Children were done when I first got there. So it was like just selecting pieces and putting them together, seeing what else you hear. And, and um, but it was, um, I, again, like I say, probably one of the more creative periods in my lifetime. I just, as a fan, you know, I mean, I've been a fan since soft and wet, but wow. as a fan during that era, there were some eras, there were so many great eras of Prince, but that was mm -hmm. definitely one of them for me. Also yeah, okay. in the early nineties, when he was going through the name change thing and he was like really pushing the envelope with doing stuff with the MPG and, mm. um, and of course, you know, when everyone loves from the eighties, but, um, during that time from the late nineties into the two thousands was really cool era. Um, just, you know, trying different things and not caring yeah. about the masses, you know, just doing whatever yeah. for, for the art and right. for creativity. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Rainbow Children was such a polarizing record for a lot of people, but I loved it. It was my favorite record of his since probably Love Sexy. Yeah, I think it was right now still. I mean, not because I'm on it or anything, but it was just because of the experience that I had creating that with him, alongside of him, and being, a, you know, just being a, a part of that. I was just like, my God, like, I didn't even know the depths that this man had in him you know, of creativity. So for me, it's like, I didn't grow up with Purple Rain or, you know, Soft and Wet. I didn't grow up with any of that stuff, you know? So for me, it was my time and, you know, for us, the things that we were doing. And it's just, I think about it sometimes from time to time that it's unfortunate that we didn't get to do a whole lot more with that because of the whole 9-11 situation and, you know, everything just kind of unplugged from that point on. And we didn't really get to ride the wave of that whole thing happening because of, say, like in that era with the funky bald heads, um, I was, you know, being groomed to do my own show outside of that, you know, as an, uh, as an opening musician with him. So there was a lot of things that I felt like uh, there could have been a lot more of. We just unfortunately didn't get a chance to pursue it. Mm. Yeah, I remember hearing then there was going to be an MPG album. I think like uh, Daisy Chain was like one of the tracks that was going to oh, go on there. Yes, yes. And I was like, wow, well, I'm really looking forward to this. If the music's going to be like Daisy Chain, you know, and, and yeah. it never, there were so many projects that, that never came, but so much was being thrown against the wall sort of at that yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. You know? Daisy, Daisy Chain was fun too because it was, one of those things I often wondered, like, why is the recording is playing basketball all the time? But then you see on Daisy Chain, you know, in the video, you know, with myself, uh, Devious at the time, David Schwartz is his government name. But uh, we would all go in there and just play basketball all the time, you know. And before rehearsal, after rehearsal, what are you doing on the weekend? Hey, let's play basketball. All right, well, cool, you know. It's like I had a girlfriend in that time and <laughs> I really never got to spend time with her because, you know, I was always doing stuff with him. And 
whenever we would do something, I'm like, you know, hey, if I get the call, I got to go. And, you know, it was, uh, uh, I say, as Morris would liken it to, is a doctor on call, you know, and wherever you are, hanging out in the movie theater, I see the private number come up. Well, you want to stay or you want to come with me and go home or what do you want to do? But I got to go. And sometimes I'll be there till, you know, from sundown to sunup in the morning. And between that, the Friday night jam sessions that would last forever. Those were some of my favorite times, the jam sessions, because that's where I really learned to cut my teeth as a performer. You know, there was a song that I wrote called Come and Dance With Me. And we would play Get Off. And, you know, I'm on the keyboards, you know, playing the clavinet and the wah. And he's like, hey, you know, keep come and dance with me. That was always the cue to take my mic off, come to the front of the stage and sing my song over the top of Get Off. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And he would just, you know, call pieces of Get Off. So he would sing a piece. It's all right, cool, now sing your verse, you know. And then this time, when it gets to the end of that, we're going to sing your Come and Dance With Me verse, but then we're going to end it with back and get off. So I'm watching all of this stuff happen, happening and seeing how you can just really run a show, jam, cue the band, all of this stuff. Everything became so immersive to me. So it's like I essentially grew up as a musician there in that period. So as far as basketball goes, were his skills as, as good as people talk about? Oh, my God. I underestimated him when we first started playing. And, you know, as they would say, uh, he ate my lunch. And I'm like, okay, you know. Mm. And I'm looking around at Morris and Kirk. I'm like, are we supposed to take him? He's like, man, no, I'll take it to him. I'm like, okay, well, cool. So I started giving it to him again. And I had a lot of athleticism, but he was just like, oh, my God. Wow. You know, I would liken him to, I don't know if you're familiar with, like, you know, AI, Allen Iverson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Prince was like that. He had crazy handles and he only needed a little bit of space like Steph Curry and just to get this jump shot off, he didn't miss. So you either had to just lock him up, make him take a very bad shot because if if he got it off, chances are, you know, 90, 95% of the time he's going to hit it. How tall are you? I'm six feet even. Wow, so you had quite a height on him. Yeah, but it didn't mean anything. <laughs> so I'm like, man, he's. I felt like my feet sometimes were in cement blocks because, you know, he's so low, he could just sway real quick, and by the time you get ready to re- react, he's going the other way. You know, so, I mean, we had a lot of good times. I mean, he seemed to have unlimited range, you know. Uh, he would hit all of his free throws if we're playing 21, you know. So it was, it was a good time. It was a good time. Was he uh, into ping pong yet then? Oh, yeah. I never challenged him in ping pong. Like, nope. Don't think so. I had no clue how to play ping pong, but I saw him beating up on everybody else. I was laughing at them. Like, yeah, no. I'm like, I don't do that. No. I just watched this video uh, on Hannah, uh, his drummer from Third Eye Girl. And she said that, I don't know if you saw this, but when she first went to Paisley Park, first meeting, before she got to audition, he asked her to play about playing ping pong was the first thing. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. (laughs) Funny. Yeah, he was a gamer. He loved sports. You know, uh, favorite basketball player after Jordan was Kobe. He loved Kobe. Uh, 
So, yeah, that was his thing. I think um, among all of the sports, basketball was his favorite sport. If he could have played, you know, and become a pro, then he would have played basketball. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.